Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where we take a film out of the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And in case you were wondering why it was hard to get through that little intro, Ian was uh, craftily MacGyver-like moving his laptop out of the way to try to be quiet, and it was it was just making me chuckle. Um so a little little behind the scenes as to what was going on here. Very unprofessional, sir. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we do what we can. Uh, so before we get to today's triple feature of very early short films, uh, we are going to bring you some recommendations this week, as we always do. Um, who would like to go first today? I think you should go first, because mine, mine's kind of a two-parter, and it does a little bit relate to what we're going to be talking about. That's good, because mine does not. So, you know, as you do, you peruse the streaming sites for things to watch, things that might catch your eye. And I was listening to a show, a podcast the other day about A24. And I was curious, you know, how many of these of their films had I seen? And I'd seen quite a few, but I didn't realize it actually put out so many. There's a, a lot of the movies produced by A24 that are out. And because of whatever exclusive deal they have with Prime, I think every single one of them or most of them are available to stream. And so I kind of picked through some recently that I've watched. Uh, I watched Free Fire, was disappointed with that. Yeah, I, I reviewed that one, and my review was somewhat lukewarm, and now which, I feel, which is a shame, because I, I know we're both fledgling Ben Wheatley fans. And, and, it, and I'm starting to dwindle. Kill List got me so high, and, and I feel in England, and, and now Free Fire, really, I'm just like, oh, okay. Did okay. you see High Rise? No. Yeah, High no. Rise is an interesting one. I think that's going to be I, – I honestly can't tell if you're going to dig that one or not. Sure. But um, before I get into what movie I saw specifically, I, I was I was uh, prompted more specifically to finding a certain kind of movie because Melissa, my wife, and I, we were talking about the fact that uh, Robert Pattinson is going to be the next Batman. And she was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. And I was like, I, I agree, but I also know how we felt when we first heard about Heath Ledger as the Joker. We all know how that turned out. Now, that doesn't mean that – Everybody who gets assigned one of these characters that are very infamous for one way or another is going to do a good job. And I had heard, you know, because I think I think Pattinson is, for better or worse, linked so closely to Twilight that maybe our thoughts of him as an actor have gone down quite a bit. But I watched something recently that I really liked him in, and I really enjoyed the movie. It's called Good Time. Have you have you seen this movie? I did see Good Time, and if I'm if I'm honest, I'm gonna say i was a little underwhelmed simply because of the way i think they had marketed it and i don't think they quite knew what they had and so the marketing was a little weird and they kept comparing it to uh taxi driver and i'm like that oh does no, not, no 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 not, not at, at all. all not even remotely see and what's great is i came into it completely blind see, I, I i really wish i had yeah and i i, I i'm not even sure who the safety brothers are i know they got a, they got another movie coming out soon um but and so, so good time is basically about uh, Robert Pat and I, and I, I didn't take very good notes because I was watching on my phone and I kind of watched it in pieces, but I, I enjoyed it. And Robert Pattinson is this like small time crook who has a brother who is slightly mentally handicapped, and I don't know exactly what what his condition is, but um, he basically takes his brother and they do this bank heist, and they almost get away with it, but the 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 money has that exploding ink dye and it and, and I I've never seen something like this but like it explodes in the car and they're totally covered in this in this pink ink and as they're running from the cops the older brother or no younger brother who is uh, mentally handicapped he gets he gets arrested but he's been injured because he's just run he ran through like a plate glass window and then oh the, that's right isn't doesn't the ink go into his eyes yeah, or something yeah he can't really see yeah yeah and so he's arrested and taken to a hospital for his for the injuries he sustained. And basically, the movie is Robert Pattinson trying to bail him out because um, he has like a girlfriend or maybe just like a fling on the side played by um, she was in the Hateful Eight, and I'm dropping her name right now. Um, uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh. Yes, she plays this like basically his his uh, his sugar mama who's got all this cash. Which is odd casting, and I, if I remember right, I do remember thinking that she was the best thing in it. Like Pattinson's great, but she, Pattinson is really she's good. fantastic. But um, and so basically, Pattinson goes to, and I'm gonna give more of the plot away because it doesn't. It's about the journey. There's no real end to this movie. That's, you know, but 
Pattinson goes to break his brother out of this hospital and takes the wrong guy because the bandages are to the face. He assumes he's taken his brother out of this hospital and he doesn't. And then that turns into a whole thing. And then that guy who he takes out of the hospital was like high on, on acid or something and, and had all this cash. And then they try to find the cash. And this movie is like, it's high tension. And once like the, there's the bank robbery and it goes wrong. And then everything is pretty much in, in real time. And it feels like a very tense movie. And, Pattinson's, I don't know if it's Brooklyn or Jersey or just, but that sort of, that upper uh, northeast, very, very specific regional dialect is is great. He, can, he played gritty. I totally bought the, like, he's just sleazy and he, and it's really, it's about, it's him and his brother. And, and if basically anybody else he could give a shit about and he's solely focused and it's not the best story. It's really not, but. I bought the the real time energy and the tension, and I I really did. I I thought Pattinson was great in this movie, easily the best thing I've seen him in, and it made me really excited to go to see um what is it the lighthouse coming up soon? Oh, with that trailer! I've, I've seen that trailer like four times now already. And, I am I cannot wait. And I was I was okay with the witch, but I really I liked mostly how it was filmed, and so it. I don't know. I I am I am excited to see him play Batman. And if anybody, oh, so am I. Yeah, and if anybody is out there who is on the fence about it, about him, and they haven't seen this movie, and I'm sure there's other things he's been in that he's he's done really well in, but this this helped push me over to to the pro Pattinson side of the fence. Yeah, the the one that started it off for me was the one he, the Australian one he did with Guy Pearce, the Rover. Oh, I heard that was good. That's fantastic. I have heard that was good. Guy Pierce just gives no shits in that film. Yeah, he's fantastic, and his relationship with Pattinson is great. Like I, I I get the argument because I was actually I was talking to a coworker about this um, about Pattinson being the new Batman, Mm -hmm. and that's that's the most exciting prospect about it to me because I mean they're doing supposedly there's going to be six villains in this thing. Four of them we've already seen in other Batman movies. Like it just it feels like we need to give Batman some time to just sit and be. We don't need any more Batman movies for a while, is what I'm saying. But yeah. if it's gonna be anybody, I mean the the Pattinson aspect of it and the fact that it sounds like they're gonna try and emulate something of the Arkham games, which really highlights more of his detective. Which I would love. Uh, yeah, I'm not but, a big gamer. Yeah, but I remember years ago when I was in college, I bought the the PS3 bundle on a Black Friday, and it came with the first Arkham Asylum game. I, I love those games, man. Yeah, they, City City is still near, a nearly perfect gaming experience for me. Yeah, those were... I, like, there was, I had up three. there with I Skyrim got, and, like, GTA 3 as far as, like, all-encompassing perfect experiences. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so you know, that, that we've got some nice little extra conversation in there. But, yeah, my recommendation is Good Time. If you have a Prime membership, check it out. And, you know, check out, I mean, A24, whether you like the movies or not, I think they're really interesting. I've st- I started the other day Under the Silver Lake, and I, I only got, like, 30 minutes in. But, I again, I like the style of it. I They're they're doing great stuff over at A24. So, did they do Florida Project as they well? They did, yeah. Yep. Like, they are just on a roll. We've talked about them before, like, being the new... The, 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 the sort of focus features yeah. of the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they seem to have a bit more longevity than they have. And I think, is is, is The Lighthouse, did they pick that up as well? Is that I, one yes. of theirs? Yeah. yeah. Like, this studio just... I, I'm really, I really hope the bottom doesn't fall out from this thing because they just keep producing the best stuff. And I'm super pumped to see High Life as well, which is another Pattinson one. That's the... Uh, uh, he's up in space with a, with a child. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep, that's right. That's right. There's a lot of space movies coming out soon. I feel like. Yeah, yeah. There's Ad Astra, Ad Astra yeah, and then yeah. Natalie Portman's got one. There's like Lucy in the Sky. I think I saw a still oh, from that or I, something no. like that. Yeah, like we're going through. I think The Martian really helped kickstart this like interest in these intense. Well, oh, and yeah, cause, it, cause between gravity. that, between between Interstellar and and The Martian, I think those kind of coming out back to back. So Gravity that. was the year, but I think and Gravity as well. That's right. Yeah. So anyways, yeah, good time. Check it out. I, it, it's good. It, and it's not too long of a watch. Um, Ian, what do you got leading us into our, our main main topic of conversation? Well, like I said, it's a, it's a two-parter. So I'll start with the unrelated one and then move into the related one. But okay. they are connected in themselves. So uh, Netflix just recently added a bunch of early Scorsese films. Unfortunately, not Box, Boxcar Bertha, which I, I still haven't seen and I'd like to because that's a really pivotal one for Scorsese, even though it's not one of his best, but it's the one where he met Barbara Hershey and, and worked with Roger Corman. 
uh, and because he met Barbara Hershey, that's where he was given the book Last Temptation of Christ. And so I'm like, oh yeah, I want to see his relationship with with Barbara Hershey and how yeah. he directed her in that before he made Last Temptation. But um, of the early films that they put on there, uh, I watched his very first feature length film, Who's That Knocking at My Door, uh, from 1967. Uh, it's got a really young Harvey Keitel in it. Keitel is about 27 or 28. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, it's not a great film by any stretch of the imagination. It's very obviously a first film, but it's, you can see so much of what Scorsese would do later. And, you know, his little trademarks coming through, there's an excellent, um, slow motion sequence where Keitel is hanging out with his, with his wannabe mobster boys and they're all getting drunk and having a good time. And one guy pulls a gun and is like threatening the other guy with it. And it goes into slow motion and it starts, it kicks into this great, um, Ray Barreto song. Uh, it just, there's something about that sequence, which is very good fellas and really Wolf of Wall Street as well as what oh, struck okay. me when I all was, right. was watching that particular sequence. But Keitel is this guy, it almost feels like the, uh, the proof of concept that he could do Mean Streets. And I don't know how early the, the script for Mean Streets was kicking around, but it's got a very similar kind of feel, even though this is in black and white. Anyway, the Keitel character meets this this woman in a bus station. She's reading this film magazine, and so they start talking about movies, John Wayne movies. And uh, through the course of their relationship, he comes to find out that she was raped. Uh, and it's about his struggle kind of dealing with that. And like, oh, well, he just took you... It, he, and it's, it's really unfortunate because he does the stereotypical, very old-world male persona as far as well why'd you let him take you down that dark road by yourself very much like blaming her yeah which is super messed up and then in order to to get it marketed in order to to get the film out there unfortunately scorsese had to shoot this extra thing and it turned it into essentially a sexploitation film a little bit so there's like this weird it comes out like in almost in the dead middle of the film and it comes out of nowhere Keitel is having this dream fantasy sequence where he's like tied to a bed in the middle of the room. I guess they went to Amsterdam to shoot it. And Jeez. yeah, there's the different women coming in and out and like frontal nudity and, and it's not so it's cartel. Uh, yeah, I do. He's, he's never been afraid to drop dong. In That's the, right. In the movie. Like bad Lieutenant, right? Yeah. I, and piano. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, okay. So like back to back, he was all about just yeah. hanging dong. Yep. Yeah, so it, even as early as Who's That Knocking to My Door? There you go. In 67, he was doing that. I really like Bad Lieutenant a lot. I'm I was surprised how know, much I liked I it. I know. I've heard how good it is. Just right? be prepared to actually see people doing heroin. Fun. Like, okay, yeah, great. That's that's real heroin being shot into real veins in that film like that. It's Abel Ferrara, if that if you know anything about him and I, his filmography. I like, know. That guy gives no shits. He did... Um, <laughs> Did the King of New York with? Okay, um, haven't seen it. Oh but man, I... that you will like that one a lot. Okay. Anyway, so that leads into the movie that. Well, I I do recommend. Who's that knocking at my door? Especially for uh, Scorsese completionists. Um, <laughs> is that it's a it's a solid first feature. Maybe not so memorable, but as I said, you'll definitely see a lot of those trademarks already. Sort of him figuring out his style. But uh, the other film I watched in preparation for the three shorts that we're going to talk about is Hugo. And you know, Hugo is one of those movies where I didn't, I didn't really think much of it when it was out. I didn't go see it in theaters, which is odd. Cause I try and see most of Scorsese's stuff, if not all of it. Um, yeah, I just thought this is weird Scorsese doing this huge budget. And I remember them talking about filming it in 3d yep. and it was his first film, not shot on film. Um, I just, I don't know, man, this just doesn't feel like him until I watched it a couple of years later and I went, oh my God, this is Scorsese's love letter to film. Yes. And I couldn't believe that I just, you know, turned a blind eye to it because it is so powerful. It, I think it's as powerful as, as anything he's ever done, especially when you find out who the Ben Kingsley character is. So for anybody who hasn't seen Hugo, um, it's about this little kid, uh, his dad is played by Jude Law, um, and his dad is a, a clockmaker and a sort of tinkerer and a repairman and a little bit of an inventor himself. And they find this automaton up in this museum that he works at in the evenings. And uh, unfortunately, Jude Law dies in a, in a fire that happens at the museum. And then his drunk uncle comes to take care of him and his takes drunkle? him. His drunkle? His drunkle, yeah. Sorry. Played by... That's uh, so stupid. 
I blanked on Ray Winston. There he is. Okay. Like this is this is a cast that just won't quit. It's a great, great cast. Yeah. Sasha Baron Cohen playing the he, the inspector. I I do like him. In the he movie. he adds just that that right amount of Sasha Baron Cohen. Essentially, he's like yeah. he just plays like a French bumbling version of himself. But it's nice to see him because the movie is PG. Like no, yeah, so it's nice it, to see him doing something family friendly. Yes, exactly. Which will probably never happen again. <laughs> Anyway, so his his uncle dies as well, and so he's left alone in the in the uh, the train station and and fixing the clocks. So he's like his thing is like as long as the clocks keep working, nobody's gonna suspect anything. You know, they'll just think it's it's him doing it as usual. And he kind of lives off stealing things, and um, he's trying to repair the automaton himself, stealing pieces from the Ben Kingsley character in his little toy and candy shop that he's got at the train station. We come to find out that. Ben Kingsley is playing George Melies, who is one of the original pioneers of filmmaking and somebody we're going to talk about in a minute. But yep. I, like I said, I can't believe that I, I let it go so long. So yeah, this was my second time seeing it and I ended up seeing it. It came out, what, like 20, 2011. 2011? Yeah. yeah. So I think I saw it about 2013 and then again just recently for this. And I I was charmed all over again. I, I had the strongest inclination to watch it for this because I, I knew that he plays George Melies in, in, the, in the movie The... Ben Kingsley, and I just I just didn't, and I, I know that I will soon. I have the I have this great plan to st- starting in '87 because that's that's the year I was born of watching all the Best Picture nominees of that year and sort of doing like a recap and sort of you know what what why were they nominated and, and were the right movies nominated and what won and all that. And Melissa and I when we watch because this was nominated for Best Picture, and so I'm I'm always trying to watch all of the Best Picture nominees, and that was a year that I I had to watch like I I watched a really bad torrented version of this and. It totally skewed the movie going experience because I didn't go to the movies. I watched a really crappy version of it. So, and that's the only time I've ever I've ever seen it. So I do. It does demand a rewatch, but uh, I just I couldn't find the time to watch that. I, but it was I was like so on my mind to do it. I'm bummed. Well, and it's crazy to me just how accurate the Melies story portion of it is. Yeah. The fact that his anyway, we'll we'll save it. We'll get into that when we, we yeah. talk about the three. But that I think that's a pretty good transition. If you want to jump straight into, let's do it. So trip we, to the moon. So we yeah we decided so just before we get into just really quickly that uh, the three movies that we are talking about today are uh, a trip to the moon or um, La Voyage dans la Lune, which I just love. I just I just like that. Um, also, the Great Train Robbery, and then a film that came out decades later, but still a short film that we'll be talking about, and that's. Unchen Andalou? Unchen Andalou. There we go. Unchen. There we go. Or uh, an Andalusian dog is a way of thinking about it. Um, so uh, getting into A Trip to the Moon. Now, it's hard to talk about these movies having like writers and directors, um, especially the first two, because they weren't really credited that way back then. But basically written and directed by, by Georges Méliès. Uh, came out in 1902. It's a whopping 13 minutes long. Uh, no real accolades to speak of, at least of the time, because they didn't really exist. It has a perfect 100% Rotten Tomato score uh, with a, a 90 audience. And again, these movies that were so old, I didn't I didn't find anything critical to say from this one. I don't know if you did. No, I didn't find anything either. So um, this movie, let's, just, let's get the plot out because it's pretty simple. Uh, a bunch of crazy rich white dudes decide to go to the moon. And after a bunch of general hubbub and uh, mass gesticulation, they go to the moon, which apparently it can snow and grow mushrooms and all these other crazy ass things that happen. Then there are these moon creatures, the selenites. Sh- sure. And you would know that somehow um, uh, that explode when you hit them or throw things at them and they come back from the moon and there's a big parade. <laughs> and that's, that's that's pretty much a, a trip to the moon. Um, so do you, I don't. Yeah, man. Where do you want to start with this? Well, I, we should probably say that it's based on the works of Jules Verne, and and later on it was credited that it was also partly inspired by some of the works of H. G. Wells as well. Um, I love knowing that that it it took three months to complete. It was actually one of the longest shoots for Melios because these things they used to just turn them and burn them yeah. and get them out I mean they'd be edited you know within days and then being sold to distributors um, but it was made for for about 10,000 francs in about today's money that's about $300,000 uh, 
after the exchange rate and inflation yeah. and all that other yeah. nonsense. Um, the costumes apparently were one of the most expensive things on it, as well as the the sets. I guess all that mechanically operated stuff. I love the idea that he he built this this glass enclosed oh, studio. The studio, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they show that in Hugo as well. Um, but yeah, it was it's crazy to me just the, the kind of the backstory about Melies and and what happened to these films. So he made about 520 some odd films. Yeah, a crazy amount. Yeah, and and we're left with I think the number is somewhere between 170 and like 190 something like that remain. Most of them are actually on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, somebody on there has made this huge long playlist where you can watch about 170 of them in one shot. Yeah. Um, if you're so inclined. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of them are, are really charming, though. I mean, I've, I've watched a few of them, including one of the earliest ones that's on there from about 1896, which is like this haunted house kind of story yeah. uh, with like skeletons and disappearing ghouls and things like that. It's a lot of fun. But the, the other one that struck me is I almost thought of A Trip to the Moon as a sequel to one that he made in about 1898 called The Astronomer's Dream, mm -hmm. where he also, he plays the astronomer in that as well, and he's snoozing at his desk, and then the moon actually comes to him and yeah. creates all this havoc in his dream. It's this great, big, beautiful set piece with, like, a mechanically operated eyes and a mouth. I mean, it's just, it's incredible to me the, the ingenuity of them and the idea of like the little cuts that they would do to make guys disappear into clouds of smoke. Cause he has a, an illusionist and a magician's background. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I, I think what, what I liked about this movie and, and what I think is great about, I, what I think is actually great about the three that we chose for this is how theatrical this movie is. I mean, there are clear set pieces. Things move up and down like you're on a that you're on some kind of a rope system. The way that the planets kind of come in and the way all that works. This is a theatrical production, just just filmed, and and the way that he used he kind of stages the chorus members and everything. Like it's it's very clear that he's got a a presenting this to the audience kind of mentality, which I, I loved. I loved watching that. And, and like people as planets and even even the iconicness of a face in the moon, which of course that, that shot is just, I mean. It's, it's still one get... of the greatest shots in film history. And I love yeah. the ingenuity of it because it was too, the cameras were too heavy and loud. I mean, not that it would matter, but they were too heavy and too loud to put them on a track and move them. Mm -hmm. And so it Melies plays the moon as well as the professor. Yeah. And so they just had him in a chair, like shrouded, yep. and then they would just pull the chair, him in the chair closer to the camera. Mm -hmm. And I, I searched desperately because he does mouth something once the rocket goes into his eye, and I couldn't for the life of me. I was like yeah. desperate to try and find out what does he say because this is the day, even in the days before they thought about putting in inner titles as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's that's how far back we're going. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I we got about halfway through and I thought maybe I picked the, like found the a wrong version because I was surprised to not find any any title cards in, in the movie. But obviously that, that was not the case. And same same with um, uh, the Great Train Robbery. There are no title cards in that one either. Um, I, what I what I love too is the complete. It's just so funny because I think we take for granted now that we we've, we've been to the moon. We know what that you know. We know that that's well you know naysayers out there, but yeah, we've been to the moon. And you know I love the the sheer disregard of any like real science in this movie at all. Like the giant mushrooms and like it's snowing and that there are creatures already already living up there. It, this movie's absurd. This movie is just crazy. But it's it's just riddled with with charm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Liz had never seen. I'd seen it a couple times before. But Liz was just awestruck, and she can't wait to just sit there and plow through a load more Melies yeah. films. Like, she's just, she, I think she was really, if you'll pardon the pun, over the moon with it. Hey, well, hey there I, it is. I, I did find myself at times, I don't know if, not with, not with movies so much today, because I think, obviously, camera techniques have been, you know, almost perfected, but... I found myself like tilting my head or like wanting to will the camera to move over because it's just, it's just stationary the entire time. And there's like, there's a scene where they're basically getting ready to get into the, the, the rocket ship and people are, are like half on screen and like the women are like getting them into the ship. And I was, I just kept thinking, Oh man, I just, if I could just will the camera to move a little bit more, I just wanted to, you know, 
Of course, we've come a long way since this movie was made, but I, I, that was probably my, my biggest pet peeve was just, you know, the camera didn't move at all. Yeah. Um, no, so. that's – and it – I mean, I'm, I, I'm sure he did some that had bigger camera moves, but, I mean, I again, these cameras were so heavy. I mean, they made them themselves. I mean, he tried to buy a projector – and maybe even a camera off of the Lumiere brothers, yeah. who were the guys that really invented film. Yes. Uh, that, that very famous story about them showing the train pulling up to the station and people freaking out, yep. thinking that a train was about to come through them. I mean, Great Train Robbery has something similar as well that we'll get into when, yeah. when, we, when we move on here in mm-hmm. a few minutes. But um, the other thing that, that struck me reading about it is the idea that copywriting films weren't a thing until I'm, 1912. I'm glad you brought this up. And so... And it's, it was very hard for them to make any money off of it. Um, in fact, to the point where he had to send his brother Gaston to set up a uh, an American arm of his company, Star Films, to make sure that they were distributing themselves out there. Because Edison had actually got a hold of a print and was making money off of it himself. Which, which, I, which not that we're going into it, but but Edison also behind the Great Train Robbery, which just as a as a you know putting the movie out there, so. A connecting factor between these two movies would be would be Edison. Yeah, I mean, cons- considering that film had already been a thing for almost ten years at this point, that they it took them so long, it would be another ten years before they started copywriting. Yeah, but, but now they're all in the public domain now, anyway. And yeah, no. Yeah, we just just pop on YouTube and give it a watch. Uh, there's another thing. While I'm thinking about films that had come out even earlier. Um, and it didn't strike me until this this time viewing it, and maybe even watching, because I watched it twice. I watched the, the black and white, and then I watched the hand-tinted color, mm-hmm. which I, I mean, enjoyed for all, a whole bunch of other different reasons. It adds another texture, and uh, I love the... When, especially when they go down below the surface of the moon, and you get to the mushrooms, and how, like, the mushrooms are the, the reds and the whites in those are really gorgeous. But yeah. um, in the scene where they're building the rocket, and they're making their preparations, and doing the test, and things like that, up on the roof, there are three guys at an anvil, just hammering the anvil, which I think For is like a no reference. Reason. Yeah, it's a reference to the blacksmith, blacksmith scene, scene, which is um, one of the oldest surviving films from 1893. It's which only I, a minute long. I was going to bring up in the next For, during Great Train Robbery, but but yeah, yeah, because it was a it was an Edison. Well, for another, for another reason. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll save it. I'll save it. Um, yeah, and it's funny. I, I did like reading about the restoration the, that they found and and uh, the like. they premiered the color restoration. And A.O. Scott from the New York Times called it um, a cinematic highlight of the year, maybe the century. And it's funny because I, I could see a lot of people who aren't into movies as much thinking, you know, what's the big deal? But to find this old, old print of this movie, which is already so iconic, and then to restore it. That's pretty. That's pretty pivotal. That's a really cool thing. And, and when I read about it, it's one of the few times I've been like truly jealous to have missed out. That that would have been such a such an amazing thing to go see. The first premiere of this this color version of this movie that's been out for so long. I just I that would have been that would have been pretty cool to go see. Yeah, I think if I think if somewhere in the city decided to do you know a Melies little you know a couple hours and we're gonna play a bunch of Melies films I think yeah. I, I would entertain the notion of going because yeah. it would just be a fun charming evening spending so watching this trailblazer invent film yeah and invent in particular narrative film well and it, it's such a bummer to kind of just hear how he struggled Right. Sorry. Yes, that's this. that's where that's what I was looping back around to is by yeah. the middle of the 1910s, by about 1915 or so, his films were kind of no longer in vogue. Uh, you know, World War One had already begun, and people people weren't interested in the dreamlike quality of his films because it was all about the gritty reality and the nastiness that was World War One. And so, of course, he fell into a depression and and had to sell a lot of the film stock that were melted down into boot heels, which they they show again in Hugo as well. Um, and it, of course, went into a rage and destroyed many of the films himself. So I mean, it's you know that's that's got to be hard as an artist, and the, the what that must have done to him psychologically to know that these are never going to be seen again. I think it is the the greatest loss to cinema. I mean, it, it's amazing that we have as many the, the, as many as we yeah, do. Absolutely. But who knows what else was in there? Who knows what other techniques he invented? that he won't be credited with now because they're just gone. Yeah. Right. That's a fair point. Yeah. Now I don't necessarily want to move on, but uh, you, this whole idea of, of Amelia's backstory being told pretty accurately in, 
in Hugo. There's a great segue. There's a Scorsese segue of the fact that Goodfellas ends with a very blatant homage to the Great Train robbery. So would you? Would you yeah, like if to you want. Yeah, I mean, we could always loop back around. Uh, to, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, I figured it was going to be pretty freeform. Yeah, I, well, I figured we'd go a little, a little directly, and then kind of go all over the place. But yeah, so um, the Great Train robbery. Uh, is so again the crediting of this is whatever, but basically uh, written and directed by Edwin S. Porter. Now, if who you don't... did who did like everything on this film, directed yes. it, produced it, wrote it. He was the cinematographer. He was the editor. But wh- what I was going to say is, of all the people in, and you know, so basically, this is also going to be it's a kind of a podcast about Melies, Edwin S. Porter, and then uh, Louis Bunnell. There's not a whole lot about him. I mean, oh, he, Porter. Yeah, I could find almost he, nothing. He is on credited Porter. with, I mean, with this movie, and it's of course the Great Train Robbery is another one of these very early iconic films, um, you know, for its real for being realistic, a very kind of realistic depiction of, of events. It wasn't as theatrical as, say, A Trip to the Moon, but his, I mean, he's got a fairly normal back backstory. No, nothing crazy. He started kind of started early on and did a lot of stuff in movies before he got to this point and didn't really make a whole lot, but this happened to be one of the movies he made. And so, Oh, you mean monetarily or, or number of films? Cause he's credited with over 300 films in the course of 17 no, years. Yes, but, Crazy. But I mean, but I mean kind of in a way like Melius, but like none of them live to any kind of repute that this right, one does. Right. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, he's, I would say like, you know, especially being sandwiched in the, even in this episode between Melius and uh, Bunnell, you know who is Edwin S. Porter? I mean, I'll I'll just throw it out there right now. It is the most forgettable of the three. The movie, the Great Train Robbery, yeah. Me and maybe and, okay. Sure, I I would I'll agree with that in the sense in the, uh, the the sense that it's a fairly normal story that it's telling, and it's not necessarily too engaging. Yeah, it's not overly exciting. It's very procedural in its Although, nature. I the first thought I had was we're just jumping right into this thing. Um, and, and, and again, the, the, I mean, this movie, there's, it's like three guys, maybe four. Um, they, they take over a train, they rob it, they get caught and they get shot. There you go. That's it. And then we'll throw in other things too, but that, that is the story. That's exactly what happens. There's nothing fancy about it. Um, but, but, uh, but the, the way it opens, I really actually, I was kind of, I, it didn't live up to it from that point on, but when they just break into like the clerk's office and they held him at gunpoint and they hide and they, you know, they basically the, they tie him up and they knock him out. And that looked good. Like for, for 1903, that hit to the head and he goes down like that. I bought that. I was like, they, they knocked that fucker out and they are going to, they're going to go take this bit, this train over. Now, just to interrupt, so is this the first time you've seen all three of these? Correct. Now that's funny. I would have figured you would have seen, the last one in Unshan Andalou having taken a film course. I figured that would be something they would have made you watch, but they were no. too busy shoving birth of a nation down your throat. Probably. No, I, I watched that on my own. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I am too. I am too. I am too. 18 year old Adam was not happy about that. Um, and the other thing about, well, not the other thing, this one other thing about this movie that I really loved. Um, but this, so this one is filmed more, the, the more realistically, uh, the camera does move a lot. Which I uh, I really actually liked some of the camera movement, but there's a great shot where they're escaping through the woods, and they have horses waiting for him. One guy clearly has never ridden a horse before because he struggles like all hell to get on it. Isn't he the same guy who also falls over in the creek? Oh as god, well? he, I you know what yeah. I, I I mean I because it's so quick and there's no real characters. I don't I don't know, but I I certainly hope so because that would make so much more sense that there's like the one bumbling idiot in the crew who can't run well and can't get on a horse and that's the other great thing about these movies without without having di- even to an extent the uh the trip to the moon is that you can kind of invent your own backstory yes. and your own sort of characterizations around you know the people in them and how they got there um now we got sorry i got i got a backpedal just a second because I, I i got right so into the into the plot and talking about it that i didn't ask the most important question ian was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? In the second year, 1990. Yes, it was. And for the longest time, was the oldest film until the, the blacksmith. blacksmith scene. That's yes. right. And yeah. in case you're wondering, the blacksmith scene is three guys hammering an anvil. 
Oh, and, and, then and they, passing a beer bottle around. And then they drink, and that's it. And and you, when you said it's a minute, that yeah, that that's all that it is. Um, but but anyways, I just thought that was it held like this distinct title of being the oldest film until they inducted Black Limousine. Anyways, um, it also has a hundred percent on yes, Rotten Tomatoes as well as a seventy-five percent audience, which again for me makes sense. Yeah, which is and it's so funny because I totally agree with you, and yet I I did really like it though I. I, I did enjoy, but it, and then I, the, but the parts that I didn't like, I think I didn't like a lot, like the da- the dance hall scene in this movie. Yeah, is and that, then, is and then there's necessary? a guy who tap dances and then just bolts. Well, because they're shooting at his feet. Oh, is that what they're doing? Yeah. Oh, I couldn't. But but is he forced in there? I, I don't think so, but it, it, what's funny about him is he, he plays about three roles in this film. He's one of the bandits. Oh, that's so great. So this is his guy. The guy, is, he was born Maxwell Henry Aronson, later changed his name to Gilbert M., and then his stage name was Bronco Billy Anderson because he played, starting with this film, I mean, you could argue that he's playing Bronco Billy could be one of the bandits. He, yeah. only, he went on to play this character over a hundred times, and he's known as the original Western star You know, long, long before John Wayne or, or any of those other guys came along. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But for- he's, yeah, so like I said, he played him over a hundred times. He's got something like, I had to look this guy up, he's got like 350 acting credits, 470 directing credits, uh, and then he, he even formed one of the first um, film studios with a guy named uh, George Kirk Spohr in 1902. It was called SNA Studios. What a time uh, to be alive! But so yeah, he's also yeah. So he's it, they credit him as the tenderfoot dancer is the guy getting shot at, <laughs> and then uh, he also plays the passenger that tries to run away when they've got them all held up at gunpoint and get shot. Oh yeah 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 yeah. But th- and there was another thing too. It was like wow, how many people get off that fucking train? That that was the thought I had. Yeah, absolutely. But then I I was I realized this was how people got around. This was the flying obviously of the day, and so. After after a couple of seconds of holy shit, that's a lot of people. It was like, oh wait, but that's that does make sense. But yeah, the, but that, the fact that only like three guys are holding up all those people. That's yeah, about, so, I mean, yeah. Wouldn't is there not one person on that train toting a shotgun to just be like, get the fuck off my train? Yeah, was the one guy in the safe room? Is that the only guy like packing heat? Yeah, maybe. Oh, and the yeah. way he dies is brilliant as well, with the arms, arms up, straight up, yes. and then the one that just slowly comes down over his face. Well, and it's funny because I, I do feel like that's maybe the most theatrical moment because he's also like he like he looks at his keys and then points to the to the the trunk and like just for no other reason than to let us know. Oh wait, the trunk! I've got to lock the trunk. It was a very it was a very uh, Melier moment, I must say. <laughs> So while we just, while you've circled back to Melier and I mean there's a couple other actors that I want to talk about oh, I who are in this film. I want to say too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to put it out there that in France and Europe, you know, in that Melies was making films as as Ben Kingsley says in Hugo, this is where your dreams are made, and he's mm-hmm. making these beautiful, charming fantasy films. Doesn't it strike you as odd, or or I think very telling? that those were the kind of films being made out there in Europe, yet here in the States we were already making violent westerns. I mean, the moment where they go up to the, the, the engine and, like, he beats the dude over the head with the brick or the lump of coal and then, like, claw- <laughs> tosses the dummy. It's very clearly a dummy. I so loved it. That was the I, best it's like part. unnecessarily violent. For what it is, you know what I mean? And, of course, this is years before the Hayes Code, so, you know, you could... Oh, man. Yeah. That... Throwing the dummy off of the train was choice, man. That was great. But I, I wanted to put that out there, the juxtaposition of, of making no, fantasy films versus point. the U.S. already being... And I'm being... sitting here trying to come up with some nice, philosophical, very intelligent thing to say. I don't. I do find it very interesting. That's a great point that what a, a year later from this very fantastical... And granted, obviously more films than these are being made, but... But just by comparison, this one film, which is this crazy, very stagey, very theatrical sci-fi adventure trip to the moon versus this shoot 'em up no holds barred, we are going to beat somebody and throw them off of a train, the great train robbery. That is, that is a great, interesting point to, to put out there. That's very true. Just, some, just something to think about. If anybody wants to, to jump on the socials and kind of anybody else has any thoughts about that, I'd love to get into a conversation about that now ian are you are you looking for a film recommendation 
Because, Always. Because I, I have one that I want to find. Uh, apparently, there was a parody of this made called The Little Train Robbery. It's on YouTube. With I watched it. Oh, my it. God. Have you seen it? Yeah. Oh, my God. I it's, want to. I it's have ridiculous. It. All, it's about the same length. It's, it's about a, 11 minutes. It's an all-child cast in which a, a larger gang of bandits holds up a mini train to steal their dolls and candy. Which just, I read that and I was like, oh, that is that is And that was great. about three years later, I think 1905. And uh, I think a, a, yes, lot, a I, lot of the people that worked on this also worked on that as well. That's so great. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, it's it's on YouTube. You can find it there. Uh, so uh, as far as circling back to some of the other actors that are in it, obviously the very famous one, the guy at the end who fires the gun directly into camera, which I, again, I'll throw another hot take out there that I believe that moment is the only reason it's in the book is the iconicness of that shot. Yeah, we can circle well, back to that if you want, but the I, actor's name is... I would love is... to circle back to that after we talk about all the films. Yeah. Okay. Okay, perfect. Uh, Justice T. Barnes, or excuse me, Justice D. Barnes, is uh, the actor uh, who plays that particular bandit. Mm-hmm. Didn't have much of a, a film career, about 80, 80-odd credits he's listed on IMDb. Yeah. Um, apparently, he died as, a, as a, either a milkman and or a cigar store owner. So he kind of fell into obscurity despite how famous he must have been there for a minute. Sure. Because of this shot. And the, one of the other actors I wanted to call out, a guy named Tom London, is the locomotive engineer. Okay. If you go on IMDb, he has over 650 credits between this film, his very first, and 1966. Wow. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. And you talk about a hardworking actor. I mean, he was even in a lot of like early TV westerns and all that kind of stuff. Well, and and you know, the, what I what that tells me is there. I think the 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 vision of what an it is to be an actor is so skewed if if you don't know much about it. And yeah, there are the like five to ten percent of of the actors that we see in movies in these big budget. Like I just I just watched Endgame. And I mean, you—that's that's one of those rare movies where you can list like 25 actors by name in the movie, and that's that's a rare feat. That's 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 pretty incredible. And if you include the like the the end with everybody, um, I don't want to give. I'll just say the funeral in case you haven't seen it yet. Just to see all of those people like in the movie coming for this one this one thing. It's pretty incredible. Well, and they, I, somebody posted it on on Twitter and, and the other social media accounts. It may have been Mark Ruffalo to prove just how many of the people were actually there. That it's not a composite. Yeah. That they were all there for that. Just what can you imagine the scheduling? Yeah. Oh, behind I, that. Totally. that that in itself is a massive feat. I know they said the same thing about the Deadwood movie. That like it was the hardest thing they had ever done at HBO. Yeah. Like just to get all these people on the same set. For the same period of time. Yeah. But the only reason I even bring that up is is because I think there's this this mystique, this 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 myth that it's all red carpets and and press and big budget movies. And the truth is like, you know, the actors that I know, the stage actors, people who are, you know, even equity actors who work who get to they make more money doing stage work. If you're you have to be doing a show you basically, if you want to make a living wage as an equity actor, you can't not be in a show. Otherwise, you have to have a side thing. You have to. There's no, it's not possible. And so I, I, I guess part of me, I don't know if I like hearing that because it makes me go, even back then that was still the case. But it's true. I mean, if you've you got to be working at it constantly to, to be making any kind of a living off of it. So just to hear that doesn't surprise me at all. Just wanted to put that out there. One more thing about that shot, though. What I didn't know, I thought it was interesting, is that that shot was uh, given to, um, as it was shown, it was it, it could be either shown before the movie or at the end of the movie. And I didn't know that before I had done the research. Yeah, and I looked, and it doesn't seem to be that there are any recorded cases of it ever being shown at the beginning. It seems like it pretty much became a staple to yes. have it at the end. But I, the more that I thought about it, because... At the, when it comes at the end of the movie, the movie's already come to a resolution. So it's just this random shot of the guy shooting into the camera. But there's something about starting the movie that way that would have made me think like, oh, we're, like almost more abruptly than we do. Because when, when the movie starts, we're in it. They're busting that room and we're going for it. But something about maybe seeing that at the top, like we're, we're at black and we, it's him and he just shoots six bullets right at you. Maybe, I mean... 
there's no right or wrong way. And obviously it has fallen into this as the final image of the movie. But yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting to, to read that. Do you think bookending the movie, having it on both sides would have been overkill? I do. Yeah. Yeah. You, it would you have go taken one away. or the other. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's my, that's my thought, but I, yeah, I'm curious to, to know if it changed the dynamic having it up front. I think it's a, a pretty interesting idea to start with it. Yeah. And in some versions, I guess, are cut off on YouTube. Like, I, I watched a couple of versions to try and find the best quality one. And I guess there, it does go on. He keeps firing even after the gun is empty. So just, like, click, 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 click kind of thing. He just keeps pulling the trigger, ah. which I think is interesting. Yeah. Kind of overkill there. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to talk about this crazy-ass movie that ends our little triple feature? Uh, well, not before, oh. not before I say... <laughs> Uh, oh, just the budget was the last thing I wanted oh, to, sure. to bring up is the, the fact that this thing was shot for at the time 150 bucks. Crazy. I mean, it's about four grand in today's money, but that's just to show you that you know you don't need a huge budget to to make something. I mean, I think Robert Rodriguez is probably the best example of that because Al Mariachi was what seven grand. Yeah, it was. That was dirt cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it looks it, but it's not. <laughs> that's fair. It's not an unentertaining film. No, oh, not at all. So, Mr. Woodington, would you like to talk about this batshit crazy, yeah, big middle finger to the bourgeoisie? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, is, is it Chien? Is that how it is? Unchien Andalou. Unchien Andalou. Um, directed by uh, Louis Bunnell and and written by him and Salvador Dali, which is of course is another great weird thing to be able to say about this movie what was it so uh bunel had the dream about the slicing of the eye yeah and, and Dolly then dolly's the was of, the the ants in the hand and yeah. from from those two crazy ass dreams came this this movie that uh I, uh, that uh major parts of this movie would not fly nowadays and we'll get to that as it comes up um and actually this is where i will i will talk about at least the the two main people in this cast um simone Marie as young girl and uh, Pierre Batchef as man. <laughs> man. Um, that's, yeah. And then of course, Dolly is in it and so is, uh, I think, Bunel is too. Yeah, right? Bunel is the guy at the beginning. He's the guy with the razor, the razor blade yes. and, and Dolly is playing one of the... Uh, the, the priests the, yeah one of the priests being dragged along the floor which already tells you how nuts this movie is um although and this is the first time i get to, get to do this part of the podcast which we didn't do before because uh both edwin s porter and uh, uh george melier don't have any other movies in the book but bunnell has quite a few yes uh the other movies by him in the book are the age of gold 1930 land without bread 1933 the young and the damned from 1950 Vera, Vera Diana, I think I'm saying that right, from 61. The Exterminating Angel, 62. Belle de Jour, 67. Tristana, 70. And the one that I'm the most excited to watch because I've heard good things about it, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie from 1972. Um, this movie does not have a... Uh, uh, oh, wait, sorry, just kidding. I thought for some reason it didn't. This movie does have a perfect 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, 85 audience... Um, Roger Ebert had quite a lot of good things to say about well, this Well, it's movie. on his great movies list. Yeah. So one thing I did read about this was that Premiere ranked this as the 10th most shocking moment in movie history. I did read that. Do you have anything else from that list? I have one through nine. Oh, excellent. Do what, would you like to go through them? Quickly? I would love to. Let's okay. do it. So, so, but this this list was 1998, if I remember a, this right? This is an older list. Yeah. 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 Okay. It, it, yeah. Um, and I, I have some problems with some of them. I'll, I'll let you know what they are when they come. So 10 was the eye-slitting scene in this movie. Number nine was um, the crucifix in the you-know-what in The Exorcist. Uh, number eight. Because um, because that's where crucifixes go, right? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. No. That's what I've been doing if, wrong if you've this heard whole it, time. If, if that's what you've heard, you're yeah, you're you're incorrect. We'll talk. Okay. We'll talk All right. later. All right. Yeah. No. You'll have to um, you'll have to help me out with that. I, I'm not going to help you out at all with that. Uh, number eight was uh, the end of Carrie, where the hand comes out of the grave. Oh really? Yeah. That's one of them. That's one of the ones I and take and that with. that beats The Exorcist on the list, huh? I, yeah, it does. Number seven is the squill pig from Deliverance. Oh, that makes sense. I'm yep. totally fine with that being on the list. Reservoir Dogs is six, the ear-cutting scene. Even though you don't see 
most of that happened. Well, it, that's one of those great things in the same way that, that when Fincher did Seven. Yeah. You know, that, that's your, your mind makes you think that you've seen more than you have because yeah. of the editing. Yeah. Same in Pulp Fiction. Um, number five, uh, the final shootout in Bonnie and Clyde. I'm thinking maybe just because of the t- of the era that it was shocking. That, like, yeah, like, well, it, that, that really, opened, really opened the door to violence in, in cinema in yeah. general on that kind of level anyway. Now, number four is from Psycho, but it's not the shower scene. Is it the reveal at yeah. the end? Oh, yes. come on. Oh, wait, no, 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 no. Not, not that it's him. It's that when the, the chair turn and it's the corpse. Oh, I guess and then yeah. maybe, maybe him coming into the room too. That 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 whole moment was the the shocking thing. See, and I, as much as I love Hitchcock and as much as I love Psycho, I really think Toby Hooper outdid him in the original Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, with the grandfather. That's a, God, that movie's yeah. Uh, number three uh, from a movie we've already talked about: the chestburster scene in Alien. Number two, and this is the only one I haven't seen: um, the Public Enemy. Uh, James Cagney. Apparently, there's a scene. Oh, I've, where, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the number one, which I, I don't, which hasn't aged well, but I do think it is a it's a shocking moment if you didn't know it was coming. Was uh, the Crying Game? Oh, I I just bought that. Yeah, the Crying. I've never seen it. I know I know what the reveal is. Yeah. But I was actually going to kind of push you. Let's uh, to put that one on our radar. Oh, that's fine. Dude, yeah. I haven't I haven't seen it in a while. I've seen it twice. Yeah. Um. The movie itself is, is – is, I don't know how much it holds up. I do think it, at, at the time it was one of those like holy shit moments in a movie and then got parodied a lot. And then I don't know how much the movie lives on. I'd be, I would be I would be interested in rewatching that again. That, well, and I, I have tremendous respect for, for Neil Jordan yeah. as a director. I think he's very undervalued. He's a unique director. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, with a um, weird filmography. So sorry to ram. I mean that that list wasn't important, but I just thought it was. I was like, what what are the top ten of these shocking moments? And granted, this is an old list now. I'm sure there are. Yeah, many but it's still it's an interesting that the Exorcist cracking the top ten. I mean that makes sense, but the fact that the fact that that moment's not higher, yeah, is crazy to me. Um, but we yeah, a little a little love for lists, which uh, during uh, next week's episode is going to be a shitload of. Uh, but we won't talk about that now. So um, this movie. Literally has no plot, so I'm not even going to try and explain the the plot. Well, he, I think Bunnell says it best himself to if to Please. take over the yeah. Yes. So Bunnell said, "No idea or image that might lend itself to a rational explanation of any kind would be accepted. Nothing in the film symbolizes anything. The only method of investigation of the symbols would be perhaps psychoanalysis." <laughs> so you 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 really bring yourself to this thing and it's the, the idea of interpreting dreams and everybody just kind of sees and interprets what they want right which is what drives me insane about I'm, I'm having never taken a film theory or a film history class I'm sure people have waxed philosophical about this thing for years oh which God. I think Bunnell and Dolly th- sure that's there, not the point of I'm it I'm sure there are PhD dissertations on this movie oh yeah, yeah. I know right which is completely not the point. Well, and that leads into uh, one thing about these movies that I think are, were great is that you know, you've got this very hyper theatrical film in A Trip to the Moon, and then you've got this very realistic kind of gritty movie in The Great Train Robbery, and then you've got this surrealist, nonsensical, no plot, free association mindfuck that is this movie. And again, I just I I think. I think without even thinking about it, we picked a really interesting trio for for this episode. Well, because they all gave birth to a certain style of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't, I, I do. So one thing I want to say, I guess, right off the bat, because that happened so early on in the movie, is I we talk about cuts, and this is one of the best uh, cuts. <laughs> Literally, uh, I do, I do really like it. I do. Liz, Liz was genuinely shocked by it. Yeah. Because and she then, she had no idea, and I didn't warn her. I figured she knew and then because it's so well, famous. But then there's the cut back to the actual slicing of the eye, which is pretty. pretty yeah, that's, that's what I mean. She she was genuinely yeah. shocked and and frightened by it to yeah. the point where she didn't know if she wanted to finish the rest of the film. I'm, no, no, no. That's it. It gets weird, but that's like the shocking moment. Well, it does get uh, I, I, for a lack of a better word, it gets a little grabby. Yeah. Um. I don't. I and I don't just say this because we're in this hashtag woke 2019 period, but just as a human being, 
Yeah, it's I, it's I un, it's really uncomfortable. He he man gropes young woman even though she was the little actress was older than him in real life. Um a lot. And uh, the 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 spittle, the drool coming yeah, down his and face his while he does it. His eyes are rolling into the back of his head. Like yeah. it's just it's It is. It's very uncomfortable. I did not like watching that. I yeah. I had a hard I I'm not going to lie. I had a hard time watching this one. And they're all short. They're all on YouTube, so literally it's very easy to watch any of these. But I I it, this was the longest 16 minutes of watching a film. I have to say it. Yeah. Yeah. It Well, it drags. And because there's no plot, there's nothing driving the film. You're just and, waiting for one horrific thing to happen after the other. Well, and then, so I could not find, and I'm not sure if it exists. I'm sure it does. But I could not find a version where they had English subtitles for the title cards. So I... Oh, am, do, do you have the I titles? I do now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. So it starts with Once Upon a Time, which don't start this movie with that. Fuck you, Boonell. Don't do that. Um, I just say that because I, I just find that irritating. And then it, then it goes to eight years later, then 16 years ago, and then the last one is in spring. Oh, and they're all meaningless. Yeah. They, they came out and said, no, they're all just meaningless. And the fact that I went back to, to read this and then I thought about the movie again, I was like, well, fuck you. I didn't why, – why did I even look for these? It doesn't make any sense. Ah. That, that's what I'm saying. Just don't don't waste your time in film courses talking about this thing. Yes, talk about it in the sense of what it gave birth to, and the fact that this is probably I don't I don't know because I couldn't find anything on David Lynch in this film, but I have to assume that this is one of the cornerstones of his his sort of you know style of filming. Like he is, he must be a fan of this based yeah. on everything else that he's done. You, know, you look at something like Inland Empire or Mulholland oh, Drive. God. It- Inland Empire is a shit show, man. I don't, I don't, I can't. That's the one of his. I, I actually can watch. Well, I haven't seen everything he's done, but what I have seen of his, I enjoy. Uh, despite the absurdity, I, I find some kind of meaning in it. Inland Empire is just nonsense. It is nonsense. Um. So, uh, so here's a here's another hot take for you. Uh oh. I don't like Twin Peaks. The show. Yeah. Uh, the, like at all. Okay. I, it wasn't I, wasn't my jam, man. You know, I I watched the first season and it kept me engaged, and then I got a couple episodes into the second and it just it just didn't. Yeah, I got three episodes into season two and I went, nah, I'm yeah. out. Liz so, Liz finished it and she's like, yeah, no, you you jumped out at a good time. But I know a lot of that too is that Lynch lost a lot of control of the second season, from what I understand. That we're not talking about that. Um, so I I okay, <laughs> I do not have a whole hell of a lot to say about about this movie um it's got some great images in it none of which i understand i do like the ants coming out of the hand there's a really cool but weird cut of a woman's armpit hair morphing into like a sea urchin uh well and i like how that circles back and i i kind i tried i even though i did the thing that i said i think is stupid of people sitting and examining this thing i did for that when it circles back and she lifts up her arm and realizes that her armpit hair is gone and it is replaced his mouth. I thought that that was, I thought that that was was pretty good justification and you know a sense of revenge for him being gropy and grabby with her and the idea of the female empowerment and you know shutting the man up, even if it's with your armpit hair. I don't know. I was trying to sure. to yeah, find yeah. some sort of again like trying to bring my own psychoanalysis to yeah. it. And there's a lot of yeah. There's a lot of. There's a lot of unconnected images that that if you took just on their own, you could probably read into the, the, the dragging the dead horse, or I think that's a horse on the piano. It, they, it looks more like a deer, or a deer. but yeah, I think some, but I think it is kind supposed of a to be a large horse. animal. Yeah. yeah, and then dragging the priests and dragging the he's got the two stone tablets on his back, which yeah. I guess are supposed to be the Ten Commandments. But it, it's it's it and then and I mean. God, they almost look like more like stone wings to me, is what they looked like. Well, then there's the guy riding the bike early on who falls, and then there's the woman who willingly lets herself get hit by a car, but seems and like he's maybe like, she's being willed into it. Or and he's getting off on it yeah. up in the window. I. Yeah. So I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop talking, because I, I have a, a quasi final thought that I, I want to say, but, but I don't want to cut you off. So Ian. I want you to, to say whatever you want to say about this movie. Well, there's a, there's a handful of trivia that I enjoyed reading about. So one of them being so the other one of the other films that he has in the book, actually the next film he made, The Age of Gold, was supposed to be a sequel. Okay. Uh, that ended up morphing into some. Somebody did actually commission 
a sequel to it. And in fact, this movie didn't do what they wanted it to do because it was in fact embraced by the bourgeoisie who they were trying to, to make a yes. statement against. Yeah, he was very much, he was, he was waiting for people to freak out about this movie. Yeah. And they were both kind of disappointed in the reaction that it got. Uh, he in fact said, what can I do about the people who adore all that is new, even when it goes against their deepest convictions or about the insincere corrupt press and the inane herd that saw beauty or poetry in something that was basically no more than a desperate impassioned call for murder. I don't know. I didn't know if you had any, any thoughts on that or wanted to add to his I, sort of rebelling against the bourgeoisie. I mean, I, I, I appreciate the attitude. I mean, I, I appreciate him having a strong opinion and, and wanting, it's like, uh, I don't know. I don't want to split hairs here, but it's, it's almost like the way that, um, Michael Haneke wanted people to have a very specific reaction to funny games. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. So, uh, you know, well, I'm glad you, yeah. Glad you drew that comparison. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I mean, but, but just being, it so makes s- sense for a 28 year. Cause he was 28 and I think Dolly was about 26. So it, it kind of makes sense yeah. in that sort of age and wanting to, to make your mark in a different kind of way. Um, I just, and just, so I don't, I, I was looking through my notes and it's funny cause you know, Pierre, Pierre Batchef was significantly younger than Simone Marier, who, uh, is titled as a young woman in the movie, but so anyways, they both died a few years later. Very. Uh, uh, well, she was she died in fifty four, I think it was. Do you know how? Yeah, she doused herself in yeah. in gasoline and lit herself on fire. I yeah. guess something to do with falling into a really deep depression yeah. after and coming then, out of World War Two. And he died of an overdose yeah. at twenty four. Yeah, but it shows you just how big the age gap was between these two i don't know why i bring that up but i do i just think it's crazy that that that's a, a thing I, that she and she does that's the thing she doesn't look that old in no the movie. no not at all yeah. not at all yeah but i just anyways i just thought that but was... i'm surprised to hear he was that young yeah yeah, yeah totally a couple other things one of my favorite things to come out of this film is it the pixies song debaser no, you, no yeah so okay so that i'm a big pixies fan there's a there's a song I believe the album is uh, Doolittle, which I think is their best album. There's a the opening track on there is called Debaser, and it starts uh, Got me a movie, ha 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 ha, slicing up eyeballs, ha 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 ha. Don't know about you, but I am Un Shan Andalusia. I want to grow up to be be a debaser. I absolutely adore that song. They actually used it at the end of um, really little scene, very great Jude Law film, uh, Dom Hemingway. I never saw that. Oh man, you gotta okay. you gotta see Dom Hemingway. But that ending on that song was also perfect as well. But I just love that 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 song came out of this movie or was inspired by it. And the other thing that I read is that on one of Bowie's tours, I think on his seventy six tour, instead of having an opening act, he played this film, <laughs> which makes so much sense for Bowie. I I'm like I'm not I'm neither shocked or surprised by that fact at all. Yeah, I, I yeah I liked it. Um. Those are my last little pieces of trivia. I definitely wanted to make sure I got that Pixie song in there. And anybody who hasn't heard it, it's it's a great song. It's one of one of my like top five Pixies. Well, maybe we'll we'll post the link to it so people can listen to it. Um, so I, I, here's here's what I want to say about these movies, and this is kind of my overall thought about them: is that I I absolutely uh, think that they are worth your time because they're not very long and they are very easy to find. There's no there's no way you can't find these movies. But you said something interesting about that you think that the great train robbery is only in the book because of that final image. Couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. Okay. I'm surprised by that. Absolutely agree with you on that. However, I would also say that I think a trip to the moon is only in the book because of that shot of the rocket going into the eye. And I think that Unchen and Lu is only in the book because of that, of that shot. Now, it's not to say that these movies are bad, because I don't think that. I think I think that Unchien Andalou is crazy and and bizarre, and I don't think these movies are bad. But I do you want to do you want to rank them? Do you want to do it, or, or did you already do you want to do like an on the fly ranking? Because I already have mine. I know what mine is. I I know mine, and I know where we're gonna. I think I know where we're gonna differ. So at the bottom of the list would be Train Robbery. That's your three. Yeah. What's your two? Shien Andalou. Okay, yeah. So yeah, I think A Trip to the Moon is my favorite too, but yeah. I would flip two and three. Okay. Yeah. And I think A Trip to the Moon is like, if you had to see one of them, I would say Trip to the Moon. Agreed. I think that is the most important, and not just because of what it is, but for what it would do later. And I've got no replay. You know, and I, I do think, I, I think that, I do think without question, A Trip to the Moon should be in the book. The Great Train Robbery, 
okay. And when it comes to Unchain Andalou, the only reason I would say take it out is because Bunel's got a shitload in the book. I don't know what you replace it with, so I'm not I'm not suggesting take it out. And I and I leave it in despite how odd and uncomfortable it's because of those reasons because it gave birth to surreal oh sure and yeah. and maybe and you know maybe when i can when again with our continuous investigation into these films maybe we see another boo now that's like no 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 this really shouldn't be and then that and then i wouldn't worry so much about it but he does have a lot in the book yeah i'm um, definitely more excited to see some of his stuff yeah oh totally yeah um but overall i would just i would say yeah sure keep him in the book and watch them. I mean, seriously, I, I, as I told Ian before we were recording, I watched all of these on a lunch break. I had, you could just watch them. I mean, I mean, I watched them again too, but when I first watched them just to take some initial impressions, I, was, I, could, I had enough time to watch these on a lunch break. So, yeah. So that's, I, I, that, I think we're... Uh, that, yeah. That's it, yeah. So I, that's, think, I think we both agree that all three are worthy of your time, should be in the book. They're all very important cornerstones of early cinema they really are they absolutely are and we will post uh youtube links to these because it's just that easy to find them uh and in case you're wondering where you can find us you can find us on facebook and on twitter at a thousand one by one you can support the show at patreon.com slash a thousand one by one you can listen to our podcasts in a lot of places stitcher google play apple podcasts what's the other big one that we do automatic what automatic spotify yep, yep yep so you can find us all the places um and and please uh, stick around for next week's episode because we we've that's fifty that's a big one for us and we're gonna do kind of a recap we're gonna rank some things it's gonna be a whole lot of fun and lists always make people go shit you left that one out or you didn't do that which is great I love things like that so hopefully you do too um, and until next time I am Adam and I am Ian and we will see you next week.